Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. If you look back at Earth in geologic time, you see that the surface of the Earth is much more fluid than we think. As tectonic plates have shifted and continents have risen and sunk over millions of years, certain anomalies arise. It may seem odd to find beds of thousands of oyster shells in the middle of France, until you learn that this was once a sea, and that the shells were scraped to the surface by glaciers during the last ice age. In fact, in our business, many of the most unique wine terroirs that we appreciate are vineyards grown on ancient seabeds. Let's take a look at a few of the most interesting. First off, why are pieces of the Rocky Mountains strewn about Washington State? Well, a massive waterway called the Western Interior Seaway that stretched across Middle America from Northern Canada all the way down to Panama once blanketed the USA. It completely covered both Dakotas, Nebraska, Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas. But tectonic plate movement caused it to drain into the Pacific. And during this extreme earth movement, it broke off pieces of the Rockies and deposited them all throughout Washington state. Some of the most interesting U.S. wines come from places where these channels between the Western Interior Seaway and the Pacific conjoined. And let's not forget about Bordeaux. The left bank was once a marshland drained by Dutch merchants in the 1700s. Compare this to the Graves region, which has a vine-growing history that dates back at least a thousand years. We can attribute many of wine's modernity to the left bank Bordeaux, which helped instate a new way of wine trading, which included tasting merchants on barrels and estate bottling in small glass bottles. Nearby, the mighty Mediterranean has had its effect on wine regions. Not only has the sea been full of trade routes from some of our earliest wines, it has changed shape and left its geologic imprint on places such as Catalonia. In southern Spain, you can find seashells and sandy vineyards left behind by an ancient sea that is now the Mediterranean. And it's not just the old world that has been affected. In New Zealand, the Waitaki Valley on the South Island is a raised seabed full of shell fossils. Some of the most incredible Rieslings from this country come from here. But possibly the most mysterious and entrancing ancient seabed that gives us wine is Chablis. 
Here, fossilized shells can be picked up by the handful. These shells were deposited during the Kimmeridgean epoch of the Jurassic era in Earth's geologic history. So all of these places are clearly special because of their oceanic roots. But what I'm wondering is this. Is it just simply a chemical interaction between the vine and calcium-rich soils that create such complex wines that we crave? Is it all about pH and how vines thrive in this environment? Or do wines grown on ancient seabeds somehow invoke an ancient response from a time when we were much more dependent on Earth's waters and what secrets it held? And could it go back even farther? Could our attraction to these wines be a link to an ur life form that emerged from the primordial soup? I know it's a stretch, but our connection with giant sweeps of geologic time is something to think about next time you take a sip of Chablis. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand gavin chanin on the show of the chanin wine company and lutum hello sir how are you I'm good. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Likewise. It's awesome to be here. Awesome to be in New York. So get out of the sticks a little bit, if you know what I mean. Your parents were wine people and they were friends with Jim Clendenin. They were. They were. My parents uh, lived in Santa Barbara County for, I think, about a year um, after grad school and became friends with Jim and Bob. And then um, my dad actually worked at Zaka Mesa for a brief uh, period of time as a truck driver. Had my older brother, needed to get a real job and moved down to LA to do that. You ended up working with Jim as a harvest intern. Yeah, so uh, I, uh, I grew up in LA. Uh, at the last minute, I decided to go to UCLA to study art, which was kind of a, a tough choice. Uh, one, because I wanted to go away. Two, because I wasn't quite sure about studying art. But at the last minute, I, th I thought, you know, painting's what I love to do, so I'm going to do it. And uh, I wanted to get out uh, of LA, so that summer I... Uh, Hatched a plan to go to Alaska and do the salmon fishing season. Um, and my mom wasn't too happy about that. She thought I'd, uh, I'd get hurt or something terrible would happen. So she said, you should, uh, you should go to Santa Barbara and make wine. And I thought, that sounds cool. So I uh, ended up going to Santa Barbara in 2004 as an uh, intern, guest winemaker, cellar rat, whatever you want to call it, and uh, fell in love with it and um, 
came back the next year and the year after that. And by the time I uh, finally left there as the assistant winemaker, I'd done eight harvests there. And you also did some harvests in New Zealand and South Africa. Yeah. So uh, let's see. I took off after sophomore year. I left UCLA for a year. Um, I did the California harvest that, uh, let's see, that would have been 2006. Then January 2007, flew to South Africa uh, at Hamilton Russell, worked harvest there. Uh, flew to New Zealand, worked harvest in uh, right outside Christchurch at this place called Bell Hill. Tiny little vineyard planted in an old limestone quarry. And then we only did a small amount of wine there, even though it was all hands-on and it was a ton of work. So things would slow down and I uh, borrowed my boss's uh, diesel Mercedes and I would drive down to um, Central Otago. So I kind of got a, a two for one there. And uh, when things got busy back up north, I'd drive back and uh, so on and so forth. I had this great idea that I would drive a different route of the country every time, but it turns out there were only two. So that ended pretty quick. But that was a great harvest just because I got to see so much. And, you know, it was kind of chaotic with uh, working at two different wineries at the same time, but fun at the same time as well. Then after that, I went to uh, England for a brief but expensive stay in 2007. Um, Italy. Uh, traveled around Italy with a friend of mine who had worked harvest in California. And um, Burgundy and came back and... Uh, Went back to work at Obon Clima and started Chan and Wine Company with six barrels of wine. So where did you visit in Burgundy? Because you really focus in on Burgundy and grape varietals today. We had a bunch of great visits. I met up with uh, my boss and, and mentor, uh, Jim Clendenin there. So he kind of opened, opened the doors. And, uh, you know, the tastings that, you know, we saw a bunch of huge names, which was awesome. We saw Ramonet and Costa Rica and Lafon and DRC. Um, but a tasting that really stands out for me there was uh, visiting with uh, Paul Pio, who's a small producer in Chisania. And um, his son, Thierry, is now running it. But that's whenever I go back to Burgundy, I, I go there. Because to me, that that was really inspiring to see, you know, just a low-key family making a small amount of really good wine. You know, not really playing into a lot of the BS you see sometimes. And uh, just doing what they love to do. So that was one of my big take-homes, and uh, I try to always find that wine when I can get it. I think, uh, I think the quality of those wines are right up there with the big names we tasted. So that was kind of fun to discover that, because my impression of Burgundy when I went there was that it was the wines were so expensive, which I knew because I couldn't afford any of them. I thought everyone would be walking around in suits and you know, walking through the cellar and pointing to their assistant at things needed to be done, and you know, Costa Rica pulled up to our tasting in his tractor. And uh, Lafon was late because he was in the vineyards also on a tractor. And you're going, all these, uh, these famous, famous owners, winemakers, vineyards are doing the work themselves. And I thought that was uh, inspiring as well. But you had worked with some Italian grape varietals earlier with Jim. And what was it like working with those and then seeing them in Italy? You know, that was interesting because a lot of, at that time in particular, we were drinking... Oh, 2000, 2001, Clendenin Family Vineyards, Nebbiolo, which were really great wines. Barbera's that Jim had made, uh, specifically the 05 comes to mind. And a lot of those wines were pretty old school Italian. Um, so I think one of the funniest things about some of the tastings we did in Italy was tasting newer school Italian producers who were actually riper and softer and fruitier than the wines we'd been making in Santa Barbara, which I'm sure there's people shaking their heads right now about. But... Um, you know, that was from a winemaking perspective, working for a Bon Climat Coupe, we made just about any grape you can imagine. Um, 
you know, Toraldigo, Nebbiolo, Pinot Gris, Pinot Blanc, straw, dried, Marsan, dessert wine, you know, all these different things, which was amazing as a, as a, as a, you know, winemaker trying to learn a craft. Um, and it's also good to get it out of, out of the system because now we're, we're really buttoned down. We're just Pinot and Chardonnay, just single vineyards that we're really passionate about. Um, so there's a, there's a focus that uh, I really enjoy now with, uh, with both wineries. Um, and I'm glad I got the, uh, the kind of more uh, aloof things out of my system early on. And it's interesting because you do do single vineyard bottlings only. Yeah. And even Jim didn't do that. You know, he did some blending of uh, a Santa Maria Valley Pinot Noir, for instance, but you don't, you do only single vineyard. So where did that emphasis come from? You know, the big, um, so my first harvest was after, after working in South Africa, New Zealand. And I remember kind of having an epiphany in South Africa when we did a blind tasting. I got totally thrown off by this one wine and it ended up being a Crow's Hermitage that was riper and oakier than anything I ever imagined. I was convinced it was an overripe wine from the San Ynez Valley. I remember kind of having this thought that, you know, you're kind of taking away what, what you have in the vineyard, which is really special when you make wines in that style. And I really wanted to show what's in the vineyards and South Africa had, had amazing vineyards and was also blending a lot. So I came back and I was, you know, totally, um, I guess, laser focused on just doing single vineyard wines. And now that we've grown and Ludum does, uh, in 2012, we did six different single vineyards. Channon did uh, seven. You know, it's not extreme because the vineyards that we're choosing are really hard to find. So it's not like it just piles on. But it becomes a really good um, place to kind of register when we, we look at a lot of vineyards every year. And I try to look at anyone who ever calls me and says, do you want to come check out my vineyard? I always go, just so you have a frame of, frame of knowledge. But it kind of sets the bar high in terms of the places that we work at. Um, and really the vineyard, the farmer, obviously, the quality that was planted, vine age, and the soil you know, are big factors. And all those, for me, have to be really... Uh, really special to jump on it. Um, and hopefully when we do jump on vineyards, like, you know, Bianacito and Sanford and Benedict and uh, Durrell, which is, you know, owned by Bill, so essentially an estate vineyard, we want those to be long-term relationships and we want everything to be right about them. So it's, uh, the growth is slow, but it's also uh, really rewarding at the same time. So you did a world tour, essentially, New Zealand, South Africa, Italy, Burgundy. Then you came back and you focused in on Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Nacido, Sanford and Benedict, Los Alamos, all Southern California vineyards, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir only. And you decided to pick a little earlier. Were those influences that you took from Jim or was it also something else? Um, part of it, yes, but a big portion of it was tasting wine traveling and, uh, and really not, um, you know, not enjoying big ripe wines for what I was looking for in a wine, for a wine that that a was delicious, which has to, you know, is always a good starting point. Wine has to taste good and uh, be something that did something kind of magical, which is reflect, you know, the dirt where it's from. Um, so to me, that was kind of a necessary part. You know, that was a, that was a huge component in being able to do that. Um, Cause so many wines I tasted during that time and, you know, still taste to some degree today. You start to lose that when you just have too much richness, too much sweetness. There's, there's, you know, an envelope of, flo- of uh, fruit that kind of seals that in. And were there examples of that that you were seeing more and more often in 
also Santa Barbara, or was that mostly a Northern California phenomenon? You know, Napa always comes out as a punching bag, but uh, Santa Barbara was definitely on the same page that those other regions were. And 2007, um, those wines were fully entrenched, and you know, multiple people told me that I was nuts to even be attempting it and putting basically, you know, my entire savings plus uh, anything I could borrow into it. Uh, but you know, there was. I had this idea that if I was going to make wine that I was passionate about, um, that everything else would get figured out. And uh, there were times when that didn't look as good as it looks now, but I'm glad, you know, we started the winery with a a strong focus and, you know, kind of stayed on that course um, through through the uh, 2007, 2008, and then, you know, 2010, people kind of started, we started to see a big shift in what people were drinking and all of a sudden the these kind of balanced wines became popular and uh you know timing was just right but does it seem interesting to you that at one side you're being championed by those who are looking for less ripeness but at the same time you're getting 95 point scores from parker i mean is that kind of an odd dialogue um yeah yeah uh you know, it's great to get uh, scores, but I was I was really nervous when I made the first wine. First two wines I made, it was a P, three barrels of Pinot and three barrels of Chardonnay from 2007. And I remember I got a good score from wine enthusiast um, that I was just shocked by. Because I, in my mind, tasting everything I was tasting, reading scores, seeing what was doing well and what wasn't, um, I, thought, uh, I thought the wines wouldn't do very well. And um, almost to the point of making it a policy to not send wines out for review. And finally I said, you know what? The wines are being made. They're out there. I'm, I'm proud of them and happy to send them out to, uh, to get tasted and hear what other people think about them. But, um, yeah, it has been, it has been really interesting to see, see scores attached to, you know, 12, 9% alcohol Pinots. Um, I would have told you I was nuts if I told, if I uh, heard myself talking five years ago. And did you ever touch base with Jim on that in terms of him living through periods of time like a decade or more where the style of wine that he making he was making really wasn't popular and still kind of sticking it out anyway? Yeah, Jim and I Jim and I used to talk about this a good amount early on. And that's one of the things I really respect about Jim is Jim never um jumped on the other horse, so to speak, and he gutted it out. Um and you know, you see a lot of shifts in styles with different wineries. These days, you you know, back then you saw wineries who traditionally made lower alcohol, higher acid wines going going ripe and making a conscious marketing decision to do that. And now you see wineries going the opposite direction. So uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for Jim because he got it out. He made the wines he wanted to make, and he got it out the tough times. And you know, Jim was uh, obviously he's uh, he's ready to enjoy the, the the good times as well when those wines kind of hit popularity again. So. What was the difference between someone like Bob Lindquist and Jim? They're close buddies. They've been business partners in the past. Were they similar or were they different? How did you find the two different personalities to interact? I think winemaking philosophies are very similar. Obviously, personality-wise, they're polar opposites, which is why uh, that partnership has gone on for, I don't know, 30 years now, uh, sharing that winery in Santa Maria. So, uh, you know, it's a good balance. You have Jim is... uh, is not shy about uh, letting people know how he feels and um, sharing his opinions. And Bob's a little, well, a lot more reserved, definitely in comparison to Jim. So it was a great team to work with. And then, you know, you plug in all the cellar guys at that winery. 
which uh, had all been there for, you know, when I left after eight years, I was, I think there was an employee who had been there full time, maybe for six years. And he was probably the only guy in the cellar who had worked less than I had. So you just had a really tight, uh, effective quality crew that was, uh, you know, I probably learned as much, as much between working with them and then uh, carpooling with Jim to work. That was probably 90% of my early winemaking knowledge. Were there any road rage ships that came out? He's like, you cut me off. You must be one of those high alcohol bastards. You know, normally alcohol didn't play into it, but there was a little bit of road rage. What about the personal marketing? I, f- I find with Jim that he has a lot of personal charisma that translates into building a brand in, in the States. And when I look at what you've done, it doesn't seem like you've shied away from putting the personal stamp on the label with your own artwork mm-hmm. and then getting out in front of it. You know, because you're a handsome young guy and you're, a, you know, a good guy to put on covers and that kind of thing. Has it been important to you to, like, get out there and meet people and show the personal side of the brand? Yeah, that was the only, um, that was the only way I sold wine early on. Um, we only actually just, just started doing um, direct-to-consumer marketing really in kind of a semi-organized way this June. So, so you know, we're late to that. The way I knew how to sell wine, which I started off not knowing how, um, you know, I had kind of an idea of what Jim did, but I had never sold wine with Jim. I had never sold wine for him either, is uh, just knocking on doors of Psalms and introducing the wines and, you know, sharing, uh, sharing a passion for the wines I thought was really important. And um, I noticed at one point, one of my, one of my biggest... Uh, one of my biggest uh, early customers was the Farallon in San Francisco. And Luke Kenning, the psalm there, um, uh, he was the first person to ever call me asking for my wine, which was huge. Because I had, you know, I'd be at school in class with a list of people to follow up with and this and that. And, um, you know, money was not, um, money was tight. And I had to sell the wine if I wanted to keep making it. And I really wanted to keep making it. So Luke gave me a call and said, hey, I, I tried your Chardonnay. You know, I'd love to bring it in. And he brought it in. And um, they just started burning through Chardonnay. And I thought he had it by the glass. I wasn't sure what was happening. You know, if I was a real salesperson, I would, I would have known. So one day I, I dropped in. I'm sitting at the bar having a glass of champagne. And, uh, and he points to a friend of his who, who was a, uh, I think it was a drink runner there. And goes, yeah, I've got I've to tell him that there's more than one Chardonnay on the list. And I realized that it was someone that we had had a great night partying in San Francisco, you know, months before. And uh, he was just selling the crap out of the wine. And um, from a marketing point of view, you know, when I buy wine and I flip through lists, the people I focus on are people that I know and I know what they're doing. And I, you know, I know that there's some sort of authenticity behind it. And I've visited them or met them. Um, You know, it just makes it really easy to enjoy wine when you know the person. So that was big for me. It was a little tough being in school full-time, and then it was a little tough when I moved up to uh, Obon Klimov full-time and was a full-time assistant winemaker with a, a real job. But um, slowly, slowly but uh, steadily made it happen. Did you find that you were a young winemaker at the same time that there was a lot of young sommiers? Did you see a generational shift on both sides? You know, I saw a generational shift in the winemaking side. I wasn't as in tune with the Psalms at that point as I am now. But looking back on it, you know, I would say that that's, that's totally true. And in Santa Barbara, it's really inter- interesting because there does seem to be a, a big shift between kind of the plank owners of Santa Barbara, um, you know, the originals and then the next generation. 
So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of cool to see. And it's always good to see young people coming out. And actually, I think the, you know, if you look at the, uh, I guess the, the in pursuit of balance push, which uh, to me had a big impact. A lot of that was kind of a grassroots effort driven by Psalms who were just sharing what they like to drink. Um, so that was really important to, you know, meet those people and taste with them and hear feedback and see what they thought about the wine. And, you know, it just kind of turned out that these wines that I was so passionate about meshed with kind of what was coming up in, in the Psalm world. Um, and, uh, everything kind of fit together. So you're in the, through that venue, you're sort of able to go direct to the Psalm buyer consumer and talk directly with them, but also to kind of swap stories and anecdotes with the fellow growers who are looking in the same kind of directions as you. Yeah. And I bet, a few of those conversations kind of netted you some some insight about what you were doing. Yeah. I mean, everyone I've ever, um, especially the Psalms these days who taste so much and know so much, you know, we get, I work in a 8,000 square foot metal warehouse, you know, in Lompoc. Um, I live in Buellton, which is a town of 2,000, even though I grew up in LA. And uh, it's always great as much as we taste and, and we do taste a lot. You know, it's always great to get out there and taste with people who really taste a lot to kind of see what's going on and, and what they're excited about. And, you know, how in my mind, our wines are our wines. You know, we're really dedicated to making a certain type of wine and that's what we do. So it's not like I go out and say, hey, what do you think? Should I change this? Should I change that? But just getting to know, you know, what people are excited about and um, what's going on and having an awareness of how what we do fits into that is important from the business side of side of things. So you're a fairly young guy. You're 27. Uh, as of today, you've accomplished a lot already. What's it like being a young winemaker and have, have there been difficulties or successes related to that? It's been great. I did my first harvest in Santa Barbara when I was 18. I started my company after doing five harvests. Although if you count that New Zealand harvest, it would be six, which is questionable. So I feel like I had, you know, a good base of experience. 2013 was my 10th harvest in California, not, you know, not naming the, uh, the international ones. There were a couple of people that told me early on when I was trying to buy super expensive Pinot Noir from really, uh, hard to get sites that I probably shouldn't tell people that I was 21 or 22. And then the other funny, uh, funny thing was there was always a rule at my first day at ABC as a, uh, 18 year old soft handed LA kid was, um, was to do the dishes which took me like three hours. And if you saw how Jim cooked, you'd have a little bit of sympathy, but still I was slow. Um, and the rule was that the youngest person working at the winery had to, had to do the dishes. And uh, when I le ended up leaving eight years later, I was still the youngest person working there. Luckily they had, in, they had uh, hired Doreen who came and worked part-time and did a good amount of dishes because time was, time was kind of tight at the point when I was the assistant winemaker and having to do dishes. But uh that was always uh, that was always a good, good kind of bring you back to home, you know. You just made uh, just made twenty thousand cases of wine, and now you get to do the dishes. So let's talk about Chain and Wine Co. a little bit. What what have you made so far in terms of wines, and what is the relative scale of that? So I started with um, one hundred and fifty cases, six barrels, which is really turned out to be you know one hundred and forty three cases by the time you're done racking it. And it's funny, I just found my initial, uh, how I used to track my inventory, which was on a big piece of artist paper, about two feet by three feet. And it would have like, 
you know, one case to Spago, one case to Kraft, half a case to Grandma, um, which was pretty funny. Kind of want to get it hung somewhere in the winery. Kind of like Cy Twombly stuff a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Future art piece. And, uh, and yeah, we, uh, we kind of slowly grew from there. Um, in 2008, we added Bienecito, which was a big deal. And, you know, I remember we jumped up to like 600 cases. And I was like, geez, we're making 600 cases of wine. And um, probably just because it was so uh, stressful financially. And then uh, in 2012, we added Sanford and Benedict. We added La Rinconata, um, And we bumped up to about 2,000 cases. And that's a place I really feel comfortable at. I feel like we get to play with a lot of different great vineyards. But um, we also get to touch everything. You know, there's no... Uh, you know, from a intern point of view, there's a lot of uh, breathing down someone's neck, I guess. Um, so it's probably not the best thing for them. But, you know, looking at every barrel, cleaning every bung, you're still at a scale where that's really easy to do. Um, so I haven't quite been able to let go of that yet. And I think we're slowly, we're slowly grow um, with the caveat of finding great sources. And that's, uh, that's harder than it, it's probably harder than it sounds. Um, just because we're we're kind of going after things that are either old or really special, and um, one hard to find, two when you find them really competitive to get in. Um, so I, I envision us kind of growing slowly from there and and seeing where things end up. But definitely, you know, not going not going insane here. Because when I look at what you've already sourced from, that seems like that would have been difficult already. Yeah, it took it took six years to well, Bienacido took a lot of time. Um, Bienacito probably took two years of constant prodding, and um, and it ended with uh, with an interview with the owners discussing what I wanted to do with their fruit, um, which is great. You know, they take that place really seriously, which they should, and they don't just sell fruit. Um, so I basically went in for a job interview with a resume and a business plan and a, a mock logo, and because uh, we hadn't released the 2007 ship. And uh, told them what I wanted to do, and they, they ended up selling me grapes and uh, selling me grapes from a couple of my really favorite spots in the vineyard. So that was great. And then Sanford and Benedict, which uh, happened in 2012, you know, that was five or six years in the making. Not as uh, aggressive um, in, in terms of the courtship there, but, um, you know, that took a long time. I remember asking a farmer in 2008 if... Uh, you know, where I could find some, some cool Pinot to make wine from. And he told me I should make Riesling, um, that I, that the chance of me finding Pinot was basically non-existent. Because there's so many, not because there's not vineyards, but because there's so much competition for the fruit from those vineyards. Yeah. And that was the post sideways pre-recession time. So that was, that was crazy. Um, you know, prices were insane. You couldn't find it. Um, you know, really bad Pinot from like the central Valley was selling for a fortune. Um, so that, that was when I started the company and that's, that's when things were, you know, I was looking around going, there's no way I have, I barely have enough cash to get this thing off the ground, you know, and I wonder if Santa Barbara is going to turn into the place where you have to own a vineyard to buy fruit. And then the recession came and kind of reset everything, but still, you know, there's, you have very finite areas when you look at, you know, there was a great thing that happened this harvest with, uh, I was talking to Bill about making a little bit of Durrell Chardonnay for Ludum and, you know, Bill's owned Durrell for a long time and obviously controls it. And, uh, the far this is Bill Price. Yeah. Bill Price. And, uh, I was talking to, uh, 
to Rob, the farmer, about it, and he goes, "Wait a second, I don't, I don't have any Chardonnay for you. You know, there's none available." And uh, did he pull out the art paper and was like, oh, "I delivered that to mom already." I'm just kidding. Now Rob's a little more professional than I am. Um, he should have though. He ended up finding us some at the very end because it was a big harvest. But um, you know, that was a great kind of. Um, you know, when you look at the demand for these things and the set contracts and the fact that you're partnered with the guy who owns the vineyard and, and you're both pushing full steam ahead to, to get Ludum, you know, out there and, and get some great sources for it. And, um, you know, how tough it is even to, to get Durrell. Um, it's pretty amazing. Um, so, you know, I, I like to think that, that we uh, work really hard for this fruit and then build good relationships and set it on auto, autopilot. One of the things I noticed about your handling of the fruit from the notes that I read about it is that it's different for each plot. It's not a uniform set like, hey, we're going to do this much whole cluster and we're going to do it for this amount of time, cold soak. It seems to be mod- modulated to the fruit. How do you see the different fruit that you have in Pinot and then in Chardonnay for uh, Chain of Wine Company? Um, I, I like to think that as a general philosophy, um, it stays the same. And we're, we kind of look, look at the fruit through the same very narrow glasses. Um, and then all the minutia ends up being different because I love the idea of making each wine the exact same way and seeing what happens. Uh, but at the same time, I also like the idea of making a really good tasting wine. And I'm not, uh, not willing to sacrifice that just for some kind of thought experiment with the vineyard. So, you know, the amount of whole cluster used... All those things, uh, cold soak in particular, harvest time is probably the most crucial thing. Uh, when it's pressed, how warm we keep the fermentation, whether we keep it in the part of the cellar that's colder or warmer, all these things that are kind of hard to explain until you stick your hands in it and have a, uh, you know, have some years of experience doing it. Those all make a big difference. And and lutum is a very similar thought process as well. And with lutum, we destem pretty much all the fruit. And then you have kind of a different, whereas Channon is a lot of whole cluster. And then you have a different kind of uh, process that goes on after that. So, uh, you know, I like to think we're headed, headed down a one-way street. But, you know, some, some wines are in one lane and some are in the other. And, you know, you've got to do what's best for them and make the best wine you can from that vineyard. Because at the end of the day, that's, uh, I think that's the best thing you can do. So with Channon, some of the signature things that you've been known for is picking quite a bit earlier than a lot of your neighbors up to a month even, mm-hmm. and then not doing a lot of barrel handling or racking, especially for the whites. What does that lend and how crazy do people think you were when you started to implement those changes? You know, it's funny, just going back to what we were talking about with winemaking a minute ago, generally myself included, when winemakers talk about winemaking, you stop after pressing, you know, and all the things we talked about, cold soak, that's all fermentation stuff, which is two weeks plus or minus a couple days out of 18 months. So I, I see the, um, the aging processes that we do as really kind of unique and simple and, and long. And to me, that's, that probably explains your early, earlier question about scores because I think we make wines that are, have great acidity and structure but are also really rich. And I think the aging process gives it that richness. And it's, it's not a sweet alcohol thing. It's a, to me, it's a more savory um, you know, barrel aging lees contact type of uh, type of richness, 
And going back to uh, 2007, a lot of people thought I was crazy. Even, uh, even people that were making wines in a balanced way thought that I was kind of crazy. And I remember specifically at one winery that I won't name, um, they asked me where I, you know, at what, uh, what bricks, what, what percentage sugar basically I pick the fruit at, which is going to tell you what your alcohol is. And I told them what it was. I think it was, I think that first Pinot was 22.9 and it soaked up to 23.1. And they thought I was nuts. And two years later, they were picking everything at that point. And uh, now, especially with two, 2013, I've seen a big shift and I'm, I'm definitely no longer the, uh, a month before everyone else, you know, I seem to be on the middle to early end. And in, in some, in some cases I picked fruit two weeks later than other people, which boggles my, my mind. But, you know, I have to point out that the alcohol percentages that we were kind of looking at and, and there was a goal, which obviously changes with, a you know, what we're after changes with the vineyard and the harvest and, and the vintage but those haven't changed in the last seven years. So it's interesting to kind of be focused on one spot and then see everything else shift, shift with you there. But it's good because we never figured out, we could never get very accurate uh, yield estimates because we were always the first one to pick. So obviously the first one to pick a block, they pick X amount of acres and they get you know so many tons. And that gives the farmer an idea of really what they have versus just going out there and doing uh, measurements and that sort of thing. So uh positive thing about 13 is uh, after harvest started, we started actually getting actual uh, estimates for the first time. And how did you see the vintage differences as vintages between when you started in 2013? I know at least one of those vintages was quite difficult. What did you learn along the way? I think patience was a good thing. I would look at the, probably the most difficult vintages for me as uh, 11 and 8. And I think going back and tasting those wines are some of my favorite wines. 10, which was a vintage that was sort of difficult, but I really loved from, you know, just the limited stuff I was working with. I actually think I like the eight wines better at this point now, which is funny. So, you know, patience, not, you know, with barrel aging, not rushing into decisions, kind of try to give myself a waiting period. So, uh, you know, with Pinot, you can go in and taste out a barrel one day, you go in the next day, it tastes totally different. And you think, oh, you know, I need to rack this wine. I need to do this. I need to do that. So just kind of tempering things and I guess having faith, I think what 2008 taught me, uh, because the wines weren't very expressive early in barrel and really took a long time to come around. Uh, but when they came around, they were, they were awesome. So what 2008 kind of taught me was to look at the vineyards and kind of appreciate their track record and not get caught up in, in these very limited time frames where the wines are not showing great. Because I knew, you know, this is I knew this was one of the best spots to be in Aceto, you know, and this is where the fruit comes from. So that's, that's what kind of put me to sleep at night rather than tasting the wine and going, ah, I don't know what's going on here. Um, so that's been, you know, patience and Pinot Noir, especially, and Chardonnay as well, because barrel aging is actually really similar, go hand in hand. Has color in the Pinot Noir ever been a concern for you? Because with the long cold soak, I feel like they're, they're not as dark as some Pinot Noirs in in the market and maybe that's helpful for you in the market uh, in an era where people are you know revolting against big big pinot but have you ever thought boy that's light yeah 2012 chan and sanford and benedict which we just released was a really light pinot and also one of my favorite pinots so i was you know i'd love that wine but i was also glad to have 100 cases instead of 400 
but it had it was you know one of my favorite wines from harvest that and the ludum Durrell were the two two standouts early on and it's interesting how light wines if you blindfolded yourself often have especially with pinot often have some of the most powerful aromatics and some of the richest mouthfeel i'm not quite sure why but that's been really interesting to see and then pinot's uh pinot's deceiving dark pinots can get light on you light pinots you bottle them and all of a sudden they're dark you know, the 2008 Bienecito was really tannic in the barrel. We bottled it and it was too soft for me for six months. So you've kind of got to just let them go at some point. And, you know, I, I color is not a big factor for me. I don't spend a lot of time thinking, oh, there's not enough color. How do I get more? Or, or the flip side, there's too much. I look at color as something that is not entirely crucial for Pinot and something that I'll take what's there. So you were at... The Impursuit are balanced one day, and Bill Price was there, who, as you mentioned, owned Durrell and uh, another vineyard and is also involved with Costa Brown. And you had a conversation. How did that come about, and what happened next? Yeah, so uh, that was a crazy tasting. That was the first year of Impursuit of Balance. It was packed. Couldn't walk around. I, br- I think I brought a case of every wine. I think I brought four cases of wine. And halfway through, I realized I was going to pour them all out, and I was going to run out of wine at this big tasting. And at some point, you know, and I don't, we didn't talk very much about the wines because I would have remembered if we had talked a lot about them. But at some point, Bill tasted. You know, I think a couple days after that, I got an email from him saying, hey, what do you think about making Durrell Pinot? And as kind of a, a vineyard freak and knowing the history of Durrell, I was, you know, that was a very quick yes. And Ludum started as, as an experiment, started with uh, one ton or, little more than a ton, which uh, turned out to be four barrels of Durrell. And uh, Bill was interested in Santa Rita Hills, so I managed to track down um, about the same amount of fruit of La Rinconada, which was the first time that fruit had ever been sold outside the estate. We made those wines, and between making those wines and a year later, it turned into a full-blown winery, which was pretty cool. And, you know, I think the the most exciting part was, um, you know, I recognize Sonoma and Sonoma Coast as as a world-class wine region. And I think most people feel the same bill included about the Santa Rita Hills. And I knew a lot about the Santa Rita Hills from my time at ABC and just driving around there and living five minutes away. And, uh, he knew a lot about Sonoma, obviously. So it was this perfect kind of collaboration that just came about. And it's led to with Bill buying Gap's crown last year and with us adding, uh, things like Rita's crown in Santa Barbara and, um, a little bit of Sanford and Benedict Chardonnay. It's, it's turned into this really cool kind of partnership and back and forth. How do you see those zones as broadly different? If, you know, if I'm making Pinot in Santa Barbara versus making Pinot in Sonoma or in the Santa Rita Hills, what's the difference for me? Um, aside from having to drive 12 hours to sample it, which I haven't quite figured out how to do without uh, breaking myself mentally. You know, the farming's different up there which I haven't, you know, I've grown so accustomed to making wine in Santa Barbara. Um, it was the only, it, Santa Barbara's the only, only physical place I've ever made wine in, in uh, you know, 10 years of making wine in California. So just to go up there and, you know, people do things differently. They farm differently. Um, there's really just a couple of farmers that we work with in Santa Barbara and we're really dialed in with them. So figuring out what they do up there, um, just so we have that base of knowledge was really important to do early on. And then the other thing is the soils are radically different, you know, and the first time, uh, Bill sent me a text, I was going to look at the vineyard with, with Rob 
And, uh, and he said, I think we found this cool, really rocky site that, that'll be really good. And, um, you know, I'm walking through this, through this vineyard and there's these big chunks of, uh, fist sized chunks of volcanic rock, which I had never seen in a vineyard before. And I'm just going, this is, you know, this is awesome. This is, uh, totally unique. And at that point I want to see what the wine's going to be like and how it affects the wine. So it's kind of this theme of, we have perfect climate for Pinot Noir in California. So just finding these unique soils is kind of the key. And that's what we tuned into with the name Ludum, which is dirt and land or soil and land. It's just kind of this hunt for, for great soils to grow Pinot in. Did it seem odd that the guy from Costa Brown was reaching out to you? Because your style is you know kind of more early picked. I mean, from my perspective, not knowing the personality so well of California, the territory or the trends of California, because I'm so far out here. When I hear those two things together, that seems odd to me, you know? Yeah. Um, that's a question I get a lot. And, uh, you know, I got to know Bill kind of through this early casual exchange as a vineyard guy and as a Pinot guy before I figured out the rest of Bill, which is Costa Brown and Kistler and Three Sticks and, uh, you know, these great vineyards and kind of his history in the wine business, which is pretty vast. So, I, you know, to me, the thing with Bill is he loves Pinot. And he also loves vineyards. So, you know, there's a strong connection there. And, um, you know, Bill is, Bill can appreciate the riper style of Pinot Noir. And then, you know, probably the more balanced style of Pinot Noir. And to me, that's just because he's passionate about it. Um, and he's not very locked in. And, and then the other thing is, you know, you have individual people who are making wine, making decisions that are very kind of personal, like we talked about early on. So, you know, to me, Bill is someone who facilitates other people's passion in a really strong way. And that's kind of, you know, that's really cool to to work with someone like that. So what was the decision making between not doing whole cluster? Because you do 40, 50% whole cluster in the Channon wine, and then you don't, as you mentioned, in the Ludum Reds. Mm -hmm. Why not? To me, uh, to me personally, one of the most exciting things about Ludum is that it gives me the chance to explore creatively these different avenues of winemaking. So, um, you know, I, I like to think that I have big philosophy ideas when it comes to winemaking that I don't break, um, for better or for worse. And uh, Whole Cluster was one of the little ones. And at a point in 2009, some of my wines were Whole Cluster, some weren't. It, and I knew that was a problem. I knew I wanted Shannon to be really focused and do one thing really well. So at the, you know, kind of, uh, whole cluster beat out, um, de-stemming by a tiny, tiny margin. So, uh, looking at Durrell the first year in 11, I was looking at the fruit and going, I really think de-stemming this fruit's the right thing to do for the wine. And, um, uh, Rinconata was a similar decision and it, that became a theme. And that's when I really re realized, you know, I'm going to get to make wine from all these great vineyards and kind of explore a different road that's headed in the same direction. So that's really probably the most exciting thing from a winemaking perspective. Is it important if you have a small scale winery operation to build a stylistic signature that customers can anticipate? For me, uh, for me it is, I wouldn't say it's so much anticipation, but um, I really like the idea of doing, doing a small sector of the, the winemaking world in a really high, you know, high, high capacity way. So that's what, 
that's what I look at. And I kind of uh, thought that early on because Channon was really started as a, as a brand that had a really clear focus. So trying to maintain that to me is, is really important. And, and yeah, that, that does lead to, you know, customers having an idea of what they're getting and, you know, customers being able to kind of invest themselves in, in kind of a passion for something very specific, which I think is, is good for loyalty long-term. You know, we're not going to have customers that are going to get shocked by a 16% alcohol Pinot one year, you know? So I like to think if, if we have a, a, a very small sector of wine drinkers that love the wine and are really excited about the wine at our volume, that's, that's all we need. And I'm happy to give them exactly what they want rather than trying to keep everyone lukewarm happy. And what are the other differences besides area of vineyard, you know, whole cluster or not, soil type? What else is different between Ludum and Channon Wine Co.? Uh, I think the biggest part that I would put ahead of, you know, the different vineyard blocks and whole cluster, not whole cluster, is just having a, a collaboration with someone. And Bill kind of has this sixth sense for vineyards. So working with him to select vineyards and, you know, kind of build the company from scratch over the course of a year, there's something different about it. I'm not sure if you can scientifically pinpoint every little thing, but there's just a different, you know, it's a different thing. There's a different feel to the brand. And um, I was talking to a, a winemaker friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about how, you know, we all talk the same talk, you know, and if you delivered a ton of fruit to his winery and a ton of mine, we said we're going to do punch down for three days and then this and then this, the wines are going to be different. There's just something about someone touching the wines and some sort of personality transformation that happens when you're making wines, especially when you're making small amounts of wine in a really high maintenance over the top way. So I'm not sure that quite makes a ton of sense, but it's there. Are there new models that you have in mind? Like in the way that Jim is obviously a model in Santa Barbara where you worked and then you developed your own winery. Now with a new project in different areas, are you like, you know, what about those wines from X winery that were always so interesting to me? Are there other people you have in mind now, now that you've branched out a bit? You know, like I said earlier, we, we taste a lot, obviously, but I feel like uh, the reason I started making wine was because the wine that I really was looking for wasn't quite out there yet. So in, in, microwaves, which actually have a bigger impact than you would think over the course of years, you know, we develop and we tweak and we change things. And, you know, you go to a friend's winery and see how they use this, or even just how, how important dry ice has become in the last five years, whereas no one used dry ice in winemaking before. So picking up on techniques like that, I think, uh, I think that's kind of a constant slow process, but in terms of, of style, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty set in our ways. You know, vineyards, when I hear someone someone I really respect talk about a certain vineyard, you know, that always kind of piques my interest. So that's probably where it has the the, the largest effect, um, especially with Jim, you know, drinking Sanford. One of the big pulls for me was I tasted 25 years, mostly great years of old Sanford and Benedicts. So I, you know, it's not like uh, we're rolling the dice, you know, we're kind of, we're kind of taking everything, every form of knowledge we have and throwing it into making the best bottle of wine we can. And do you always see yourself in the future as a Pinot and Chardonnay guy or is down the line there going to be the opening to 
work with Syrah or work with Tempranillo or to do something different? Let's see. I made a Riesling in 2010. It was just three barrels. Most of it went to uh, Bouchon as their house wine for, for LA. But, you know, every once in a while, mixing it up is a lot of fun. And I think as kind of side projects, that's probably going to happen at some point. The flip side of that is it's really rewarding to just do a couple of things. And the winery is totally set up to do those things really well. So there's just something about it. There's a, there's a wavelength to it, you know, that the winery is on because it's just Pinot and Chardonnay um, that works really well for what we do. And how do you imagine Ludum to grow? I see now that most of the sales seem directed towards restaurants. What, how will it grow as a winery or will it not grow? I think we're going to grow slowly as we find new sites. You know, we added in 2013 Gaps Crown, which is an amazing uh, vineyard that, that Bill bought uh, late in 2012. There's no, you know, extreme growth plan. And uh, aside from that, I think, uh, you know, like you said, restaurants and, and direct-to-consumer are our ideal market. So, you know, just kind of keep at it and see where that goes. We uh, released the first wines to the mailing list on Tuesday, and the majority of them were sold out in, you know, pretty much that first day with stragglers coming in after that. So kind of just, you know, seeing where things go. Gavin Chain, and he's seen where things go, and so far they've been pretty good. Thank you, sir, for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Gavin Chain of Chain & Wine Co. and Lutum. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.